It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down. Hi, uh, my name's Tilly. And my name's Ben. Uh, and this is an episode of Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Uh, a podcast about Moby Dick. Sorry, I'm immediately just... I, I could have sworn it was Higgledy Piggledy Whale facts in the book, but Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements is so much better. Yeah, it's it's definitely Whale Statements. Okay, um, fantastic. I, I know no, I kept calling it Whale Facts to you, and I, I, I take the L. Uh, no, it's okay. Whale Facts is an accurate description of, you know, the book. and Except that there aren't really Whale Facts in, in a modern sense. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, so yeah, that's the name of our show. It's, it's a quote from, in the book, later on, uh, than the part that we're reading today. Uh, but today, we are reading, uh, and, like, talking about, uh, chapters four through eight. Um, which maybe sounds like a lot, but they're, most of them are pretty short chapters. Uh... So I guess I'll just get started with the, the summary that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. So chapter four is called The Counterpane. Um, if you remember from last time, uh, Ishmael and Queequeg uh, had both fallen asleep um, in the same bed. Uh, we, we can only assume, like, with looking like perfect angels with the covers pulled up to their noses. Um so this chapter starts the next morning, um, and Ishmael wakes up before Queequeg, and uh, I, I just felt that I had to, like, quote the actual text. He says, I found Queequeg's arm thrown over me in the most loving and affectionate manner. You had almost thought I had been his wife. Um, so that's just a lot to take in as that being, like, the first, like, two sentences of this chapter. Yeah, no, he just dives right into it. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, like, reference to this in in the rest of this chapter. The idea that, like, they're somehow... Matrimonial? Uh, yeah. Also, I, I just wanted to point out, because this is, it's something that comes over from the chapter break. In, cha- in uh, the previous chapter, it ended with, I turned in and never slept better in my life. Yeah. So... Uh, Ishmael sleeps best, uh, literally never before or after since, he sleeps best if he is cuddling up to Queequeg like his wife. Yeah. Yep. That, that is, like, the simple facts of what we've re- read here. Um, so, so there's that opening, um, and then Ishmael, who's awake and under Queequeg's arm, starts, like, staring at it and he's comparing it in his head to the the quilt that it's lying on because the quilt is like patchwork and uh Queequeg's arm is covered in like tattoos and also just like 
uneven tan lines and things like that um, that make it very varied in appearance. Um, and then there's sort of this long tangent where, uh, in order to make the point about how confused and disoriented he was waking up, on, like, under being hugged by Queequeg, um, Ishmael goes into this anecdote from his childhood, uh, where he was, like, lying awake in terror? Uh, but then he says, it, it was like that, but without the terror. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I think that specifically, uh, it's a ghost story. He's He was sent to bed by his stepmother for 16 hours because he uh, misbehaved in some fat, in, 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 you know, what he calls cutting up some caper or other. And uh, Ishmael was, who was presumably not called Ishmael then, because it's sort of implied in the book that Ishmael is a name he's sort of taken on for the story or is, is asked to be called, but it's not necessarily what he was going by when he was a kid. And he's uh, spending 16 hours in bed because he was sent to bed at, like, noon, and um, or, or a little bit after. Oh, two o'clock in the afternoon, sorry. And then he sort of has this experience as he's lying dozing there, he has an experience of sleep paralysis or something like that, where he feels like someone has taken his hand, but there's no one there besides the bed, beside the bed. And he's just paralyzed and terrified, and he's certain that there's a ghost or something. And, um, uh, yeah, a supernatural hand seemed placed in mine. My arm hung over the counterpane in a nameless, unimaginable, silent form or phantom to which the hand belonged seemed closely seated by my bedside. So, you know, kind of terrifying and formative, and a little Ishmael is being extremely traumatized by this. And then, you know, Sleeping with Queequeg is like that, except um, not in any way terrifying or supernatural. It's just nice. So it's one of the worst analogies in this book, and that's like a champion level of like bad analogy, given everything about Ishmael. It is. It it's a very confusing. I mean, um, it 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 gives you the feeling of like dream logic, mm-hmm. um, where like he's associating. It's almost just the physical sensation of like an arm pressing down on him or something like that that yeah. he's connecting here. Um, Anyway, so eventually, uh, Ishmael starts trying to wake Queequeg up, um, and it takes a lot of effort, but he manages to do it, and, uh, then the awake Queequeg, uh, he can't, um, he, he, like, indicates by signs that he wants to get dressed first, uh, before Ishmael, so he gets out of bed, and he does that, um... Which leads Ishmael to admire, uh, like, the politeness with which Queequeg does a lot of these things. He sort of seems to see this, like, inherent nobility in Queequeg's, like, actions. Um, And he he thinks about that while watching Queequeg get dressed. It's, I mean, there's that. He's definitely, you know, um, he's compelled by, by Queequeg's kindness and letting him stay in bed while Queequeg has to get up and be the first one to get dressed and be cold and so on, and then he'll have the apartment all to himself, and he thinks that's very nice. But also, um, I, I just want to uh, point out that um, uh, Queequeg um, 
The first thing Queequeg puts on is, I think, his hat, and then his boots, and there's they're sort of an odd thing where, uh, which is part of the, the general thing about how Queequeg has this very natural politeness, but isn't really used to the culture of what Ishmael calls civilization, but, you know, is like New Englanders. So Queequeg seems to think that it would be undecorous to put on his boots in front of another man. Uh, possibly this is some actual cultural taboo or thing that Ishmael is ignorant of, but uh, Melville had, like, at some point um, uh, witnessed, since he was widely traveled, or it could be completely made up. But what's really important is that uh, Queequeg will, like, go out of Ishmael's sight by literally crawling under the bed to put on his boots, and there's this huge effort. But then the only things Queequeg is wearing are his hat and boots, and there's no sign of a um, of any night clothes. So first of all, uh, Queequeg is naked. All, all night, and they, they were just cu cuddled up together um, with Queequeg, Ishmael, and Queequeg's tomahawk, which was also in bed, um, because he had been smoking with it previously. Um, so first of all, that's all just, again, a lot. But also, there's the amazing bit where, um, you know, uh, Ishmael says, I begged him as well as I could to accelerate his toilet somewhat, and particularly to get into his pantaloons as soon as possible. So the entire time Ishmael has been, like, staring at Queequeg and thinking about how noble, yet, you know, intense and savage he is, and how he's, you know, um, so kind and well-intentioned, but not yet civilized, he's also staring at Queequeg's dick. That's... Yeah, I mean, that is an available interpretation. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't um, mention that Queequeg is not wearing drawers until that moment, and I can't interpret it any other way. Yeah. Um, he's also, like, worried about, I think there's, like, a, a window yes, that opens yes. onto, uh, like, a, the house across the way. So that's why, that's or part of why, um... Ishmael is so concerned that Queequeg finished getting dressed. Yeah, um, no, you're right. If it weren't for the window, he would not have mentioned to Queequeg that he should put on some kind of underwear. Yeah, I, I can empathize with this problem because uh, I have a window in my bedroom uh, that faces mm -hmm. out onto the street. Um, and, I mean, I keep the, the curtain closed almost all the time. But sometimes I open it to get sunlight, and then it's very frustrating to remember, like, oh, okay, people can see me. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm, I'm just trying to restrain myself, because I, I, I promised myself I would not constantly verbally reference the Senor Chang gay gif in, uh, in this podcast. Oh, Jesus. But Is this that a community reference? It's a community reference, and I'm sorry. Feel free to remove that bit from the final version. No, I'm not going to cut it. It's not <laughs> terrible in that way. Like, it's, I'm just... It's pretty it's terrible. It's, it's incredibly corny, yes. But I... Look, I, I ship them, first of all. And second of all, on a second reading, it's, it's, it's so blatant. Yeah, yeah. Although it's kind of weird. Like, the, this relationship is really intense at first, and then it kind of, like, fades away from the narrative for a while that's kind of true but also aren't they bunking at least in close quarters for much of the much of the story i don't know i always felt like this was establishing it and after that point it's just sort of taken as read that the two of them are just bosom buddies and more or less married for the rest of the story yeah that's that's fair um that would be like taking it taking ishmael 
at his word as to what he's like saying about this. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of, I sort of feel like there is a, I don't know. I, I guess I should save this discussion for when we actually get to later chapters where I feel like it's weird that there isn't more like Queequeg. Yeah. No. Ishmael content. That's very fair. And I'm Anyhow, really um, curious about your thoughts on that now. And I'm going to have to restrain myself from asking you so that we can discuss it in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is not, like, some sort of grand problem that I have with this oh, book. It's just the thing sure, that I sure. think of. It's... Look, this is... this is It's Moby Dick. Nothing we say can hurt it. And also, I'm pretty sure we both like the book. So, I'm, I'm not worried. Yes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, so, that's, that's pretty much the end of uh, Chapter 4, The Counterpane. So, next is Chapter 5, Breakfast. Uh, so, as you would guess... Uh, the two of them head down to the main bar room for breakfast, um, where they encounter all the other boarders as well, um, who are mostly other whalemen. Um, so all the boarders at this inn sit down to breakfast, um, and Ishmael is really surprised that, uh, for the most part, everyone is keeping quiet and, uh, just, you know, very solemnly eating their food rather than chatting and telling stories um which is i guess what you would expect or at well, least what ishmael would expect from yeah yeah, yeah i i do really like that he's like um, these timid warrior whale men a curious sight I, I got that in the wrong order but he's just so um he's so romantic about the idea of whaling that he's uh just he's like they're just people eating food why are they not all as cool as queequeg what is wrong here yeah um although speaking of queequeg he he is like satisfying whatever uh you know uh desire for interest people might want that isn't being filled by conversation because he's um using his harpoon as a utensil of general purpose like to pull plates towards him to spear food uh, to cut things up. Um, and I can only say go off, King. <laughs> I, I do love, um, to be sure I cannot say much for his breeding, his greatest admirer could not have cordially justified his bringing his harpoon into breakfast with him and using it there without ceremony. It's like, so you're saying you could not have cordially justified his bringing his harpoon to breakfast with him, Ishmael, because we know who his greatest admirer is already. <laughs> but, yeah, um... pretty evident. Yeah, but I also want to... Something from the last chapter that I, I didn't mention, but uh, Queequeg shaves with the head of his harpoon. Oh, yeah. And I am just true. a huge sucker for characters who shave with, like, a sword, or in this case, a harpoon, or really any large, sharp weapon that is not in any way meant to be shaved with. I just immediately go, yeah, that's really cool! And, yeah, I'm, I just want to express my appreciation for Queequeg. He's a badass. How do you feel about, like, tense scenes where uh, one person is shaving the other with, like, a straight razor, and it's like there's a weird tension of, like, is he going to cut the other guy's throat? Because he has him in this totally vulnerable moment. Those are those are classic. Those can be good. You know, Lather and Nothing More is a great short story. I like, um, did that happen in, uh, um, in, uh... Pan's Labyrinth. I feel like it did, but uh, those those are good. Oh, but have. I, 
I much prefer just the idea that the normal every day or every other day or whatever routine for this person is using something that is in no way intended to, like, neither in terms of the, the kind of steel or the, the shape of the object is intended to shave. It's, it's a piece of absolute, like, non-realism. Like, okay, I can believe maybe a harpoon head because you can disconnect it from the shaft and everything, but, like, shaving with a sword is not a reasonable thing to do. It's, if anything, a recipe for giving yourself a really long, impressive scar. And I'm a huge sucker for it. I just think it's like, yeah, you're so, you know, dedicated to this life. You're so much just, this is just how you live that you use your your sword, your harpoon to shave with. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you've, you've completely sold me on this. Um, mm. And Queequeg also, uh, like, smokes his, uses his tomahawk for a pipe. So I think basically every item he uses in, like, his daily routine is some kind of weapon that you use on a boat. And, yeah, I, I stand. Since that's, yeah, that's the, the language we're using today. <laughs> <laughs> you started this! Uh, I don't regret it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's breakfast, uh, basically. Um, I don't know, was there anything more you wanted to draw out of that chapter? Uh, I mean... I do really appreciate also that Queequeg is doing the boarding house stretch where you just don't ask for someone to pass something, you just reach over everything, but he's doing it with a harpoon, and that might also explain why everyone's being super quiet, but, you know. Oh, yeah, it's entirely possible. Oh, um. and one other thing, sorry, I'm, I'm too excitable today. Uh, also, um, when there's this line, um... But who could show it? It's talking about, um, like, the tans on the various sailors, and now you can tell which ones of them have been long ashore or have been just traveling, because any sailor that's been on a boat is just sunburned and tanned and so on. Uh, but then um, you've got, uh, but who could show a cheek like Queequeg, which, barred with various tints, seemed like the Andes' western slope, to show forth in one array contrasting climates, zone by zone, and that is a reference that proves that Ishmael is well-read and, like, it's not just, uh, you know, a reference to being well-traveled. That's specifically a reference to Humboldt, the famous uh, scientist and explorer who inspired Darwin, Wallace, all those people, and was, like, a hugely popularly read, uh, like, um, uh, travelogue writer because he specifically wrote extensively about the sort of uh, varied environments going up the Andes Mountains and is considered one of the like scientific fathers of biogeography, uh, where he, those, that sort of model of specific things live at specific altitudes and in specific locations formed a lot of the early understanding of the distribution of species. Anyways, that's just me dorking out about the, the Ishmael referencing uh, the state of science at the time. That is actually super interesting. I didn't know any of that. Um... Yeah, no, this... One of the things I love about Ishmael as a narrator is that he makes... I mean, there was that one really terrible, terrible fart joke uh, early on that required, mm -hmm. like, three different classical references. Ishmael is writing both incredibly, like, uh, in some ways unsophisticatedly. I've, I've mentioned before that he's a terrible storyteller, and that's why the book is so good, that Ishmael, not Melville, but Ishmael is, a, is bad at telling these stories. 
And part of that is that he'll drop these erudite references and elements that help sort of inform his character and the character of the story without being immediately obvious uh, unless you have those particular references yourself. Yeah. It's very... Uh, it, 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 it's... Uh, it kind of starts to wash over you a little bit as you read, mm-hmm. like all the um, things that Ishmael just sort of drops. Um, it, you, and not that uh, I don't want to discourage people from reading the book. Uh, it re- it re- really is a uh, like totally possible to follow it, even if you don't have like a classical education. Yeah, I, to be clear, I, I don't get, I think, most of these references. There's people that he references that you're sort of maybe expected to recognize that I definitely don't, and it doesn't really matter that much, but it, the place where I think it matters is that it's not just that Ishmael is trying to come off as educated, which he definitely is, but also that, um, you get this sort of sense that there's, you know, there's more going on with Ishmael than his sort of immediate presence in the story. I've talked earlier about how, um, in an earlier episode, how I really uh, love the fact that Ishmael is a completely non-transparent narrator, that uh, the book is just so much enriched by the fact that he's weird, and Uh, This is part of it, that he'll drop these references and just sort of let them hang, and it's only with a certain amount of, like, research or spending a little time with it, or recognizing, I assume people at the time would recognize it, that you realize these aren't meant to be just sort of Melville attempting to communicate things. They specifically form a picture of Ishmael's own internal world. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, we're, We're kind of... Ishmael as a character is absolutely being developed by, you know, everything we hear from him. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So, uh, to move on. Um, yep, sorry. In chap- No, it's all good. Uh, in chapter six, uh, the street, Ishmael heads out to take a little stroll um, by himself this time, uh, not with Queequeg. Um, and he just sort of describes the sights that he sees, uh, and he's like, oh, it's, you know, talking about saying that, uh, New Bedford is, like, one of the most fascinating places to take a walk in, because there's so many different kinds of people. He, he lists a bunch of different, like, uh, peoples, um, like, a bunch of different Pacific Islands, basically. Um, and then, you know, of course, there are whalemen. Uh, and then he goes into, uh, much more detail about another group of interesting people you see on the street who are country boys who are seeking glory, uh, wailing. Um, and Ishmael spends about two paragraphs roasting them. (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely accurate. He's, he's. He's a little bit nice, but he's mostly just brutal. Yeah, um, he's he's like making fun of the the kinds of clothing that these uh, newcomers to whaling are wearing, um, and uh, talks about like how none of the these like fancy clothes are going to survive their first storm. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. 
And also, possibly they are not going to survive it, because it's not just like, oh, you know, you're, yeah. you're closely, it's, it's when thou art driven, straps, buttons, and all down the throat of the tempest. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny because um, Ishmael is not himself, he has not gone on a sailing or a he has not gone on a whaling voyage before. So he's he's not like totally green in that I think he's been to sea before. Yes, he's but... um he mentions that he likes to travel as a sailor because he gets paid for it rather than having to pay for it as a as a um, as a passenger. But uh, right. he hasn't before the story he hasn't actually uh, served as a whaling a whaleman. He's only been a sailor. So I feel like there's a little bit of, like, looking down on the person, like, the person who's already kind of low on the on the ranking, looking down on the one person who's below them, you know? Yeah, no, I, uh, I think you're right that he's, he's absolutely... Well, hmm, that's actually a little complicated, because, you know, uh, this is... This is written from the perspective of Ishmael after the story, in, in, at least theoretically. So he has been a whaleman by the time this book is being, you know, by the time he is telling you this story. But on the other hand, in the narrative so far, he's absolutely never been anywhere near a, The closest he's been to a harpoon is the fact that Queequeg owns one. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, anyhow, uh, he's, he's, he's just got a lot to say about country dandies. Yes, actually, do you want to read that sentence? Because it's fantastic. Uh, which, which one? Uh, the one that starts with, no town-bred dandy will compare with a country-bred one. Yeah, no town-bred dandy will compare with a country-bred one. I mean, a downright bumpkin dandy, a fellow that in the dog days will mow his two acres in buckskin gloves for fear of tanning his hands. Uh, so, that's, you know, that, that paints you a picture of someone who's very precise about their appearance. And also, just, like, the idea of someone going out to, to and Mo, in this case, I, I automatically picture someone, like, pushing a little lawnmower, but no, they've got, like, a scythe, and they're spending oh, hours right, right. in, hours in the sun getting their face completely burnt and everything, and, you know, practically speaking, they'd want to be wearing, like, you know, a wide-brimmed hat and loose clothes, and they're wearing, you know, uh, fashionable gloves and so on. That's just going to be miserable for hours. Yeah. And um, two acres is not small. Yeah. You know, I, Ishmael might be exaggerating just a little bit. Well, yes, but... <laughs> yeah, so... Um, so he goes into that, and then he starts just, just sort of describing other things he's seeing in the street, that the general landscape is really barren. Uh, like, it's hard to imagine that anything would grow here. But the houses and the gardens are super nice uh, because everything is basically financed by whales. Um, and uh, so he, he sort of goes into, like, how, you know, this garden is, like, founded on, like, whale oil, basically. Mm -hmm. Um uh, he has some lovely metaphors, like uh, one and all uh, these houses, the, the, all these brave houses and flowery gardens came from the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian oceans. One and all, they were harpooned and dragged up hither from the bottom of the sea. Yeah. Um, 
So, after mentioning that, he goes in to also say, by the way, uh, it's beautiful there in summer. And the New Bedford girls are really pretty. And that's how he, like, ends the chapter. So, he's clearly trying to encourage tourism to New Bedford. (laughs) I don't think you're wrong. But there's also an interesting um, element here where he says... uh, um, talking about how these, you know, gardens in the summertime, it's so beautiful. So omnipotent is art, which in many a district of New Bedford has superinduced bright terraces of flowers upon the barren refuse rocks thrown aside at creation's final day. Which is really interesting because it gets into a lot of stuff we're going to see throughout the book about, um, like, craft and construction and Gnosticism. I got to say Gnosticism. Um... But, like, this idea that this stuff that is the refuse of creation, the, like, stuff that is pretty much explicitly sort of abandoned or set aside by God that is the, uh, the, that is New England, is just, like, a bunch of scree tossed up, is by art and by specifically what he's elsewhere in this chat, I think a chap, in this same chapter described as, like, dueling whales, and that might have been the previous chapter, actually, but, uh, like, going forth and fighting the, like, the might of nature and being able to therefore create this almost, like, Edenical paradise, um, Edenic, this Edenic paradise out of, uh, the prophets from that. It's really interesting that he explicitly says how omnipotent is art, uh, in, and specifically human art, and then goes into how beautiful the people of New Bedford are and how they outshine, and, you know, specifically the girls and, you know, talking about how you should come and, you know, kiss them, presumably. But I just think that's really, it's interesting that he has that very specific, almost theological aside in the middle of joking about how, uh, in New Bedford, fathers, they say, give whales for dowers to their daughters and portion off their nieces with a few porpoises apiece. That's, like, not funny alliteration, and it's, it's a goofy sentence, and uh, everything is, like, you know, kind of silly. And then he's like, art allows us to create this beauty from nothing, spiting God. Like, not, not saying that specifically, but I don't know. I like the juxtaposition a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. He, uh, You can really go from zero to 60 when it comes to sort of, like, <laughs> introspection about, like, God's creation uh, for Ishmael. I find it very relatable. (laughs) Uh, So then in the next chapter, um, chapter seven, the chapel, uh, he finishes his stroll and it's time to go to church since it's Sunday morning. Um, So he, uh, he goes into this chapel uh, where he finds um, what he call he calls a a small scattered congregation of sailors and sailors' wives and widows. So, like from the first sentence, there's this kind of pall of death hanging over this because of mentioning specifically sailors' widows, um, and all of these people are paying attention to uh, these tablets that are built into the wall, uh, which are memorials for whalemen um he like writes out a few kind of examples and they're all basically epitaphs um saying like you know uh this is to remember this person who was uh dragged away by a whale on this date um so 
Ishmael takes a seat, and to his surprise, Queequeg is there. Um, and they're like the only two people who are not just paying attention to the tablets. Um, and uh, Ishmael sits down, and he reflects that probably some of the people in the congregation are grieving for the people mentioned in the tablets. Um, and he just sort of thinks about death. Um, yeah, he's, um, he just really goes into it, you know, understandably, given the location, but he has this, um, this extended monologue about how, um, uh, being basically someone who died and vanished at sea, uh, and must be presumed dead is much harder on the family than, uh, having someone's, you know, body to bury. Uh, specifically, ye whose dead lie buried beneath the green grass, who standing among flowers can say, here, here lies my beloved, ye know not the desolation that broods in bosoms like these. So, again, just zero to sixty, in this case, to think about death. Fun! Yeah. But, uh, but at the end of all of these, like, heavy doubts, um, he, he does remember that, you know, he believes in eternal life, um, and so sort of tells himself or concludes that death is not a big deal, um, and he specifically says, and I, I'm gonna read this quote because I like it, come a stove boat and a stove body when they will, for stave my soul, Jove himself cannot. Um. Uh, yeah, no, that is a, that's such a fantastic line. I also really like, um, there's just a number of, uh, complicated and interesting things going on in this whole section that, okay, very Gnostic, again, just, just putting out that out there, um, uh, talking about, um, uh, methinks we have hugely mistaken this matter of life and death. Methinks that what they call my shadow here on earth is my true substance. Methinks that in looking at things spiritual, we are too much like oysters observing the sun through the water and thinking that thick water the thinnest of air. Methinks my body is but the lees of my better being. And this is, on the one hand, certainly not particularly heterodox for the kind of Christianity involved here, but is also really, really Gnostic. The idea that the body is almost a, is the lees, is this, like, uh, corrupt thing that's holding one back from that higher element. Um, and, you know, again, that's not, that part of Gnosticism is not hugely different from a lot of varieties, especially Puritanical Christianity. But, um, the uh, specific, like, almost um, happiness prepare in preparation for death, the, like, joy going there is not precisely normal. Like, this is supposed to be such a grim location. He even has this one line that I did not check to see if this was from elsewhere, which really, um, if I was going to be serious about this, I should have. But uh, he says, Faith, like a jackal, feeds among the tombs, and even from these dead doubts she gathers her most vital hope. And the idea of faith as a jackal seems, um, kind of horrifying. Yeah, I have no idea if that's a quotation from anything, but I think it's probably not, because I, uh, I think that th that would be mentioned on the, um, like, footnoted version that I have. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, in that case, wow! Ishmael just has that metaphor, and he made it, so, um, 
That's a lot. Yeah. I also, um, just going on about this, this whole section about death, um, and his, uh, he's also, uh, got this section about how, um, we all, basically, we, we act even, even when we believe in eternal life, uh, according to him, you know, he's talking about how this is a very, you know, all the people around him are religious, they believe in eternity and eternal life, yet at the same time, um, you know, uh, how is it that we still refuse to be comforted for those who we nevertheless maintain are dwelling in unspeakable bliss? Why all the living so strive to hush all the dead? Wherefore, but the rumor of a knocking in a tomb will terrify a whole city. All these things are not without their meanings. So already you have this sort of back and forth between, on the one hand, an almost an, an incredulity about... Uh, about faith in the sense of, you know, no, we're all terrified of death. We all act like it's the end. We, at the same time, claim that we believe in heaven, but are uh, terrified of the dead. And, and you know, and then he goes on to sort of rebuild that and argue that, no, 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 the correct answer is that we should be fine with dying, and therefore Nantucket is great, because you can die there. Yeah, that that is basically, that is the conclusion he comes to. Um that's, which, boy, that's just a great mood to, like, hear the word of God on Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, it, it probably is, uh, given the kind of, like, preaching that it comes, but, yeah, uh. Yeah, Ishmael is, is at any moment ready to just go, yeah, death. <laughs> that's, yes, he absolutely is. Ah. <sighs> All right, so... And what's... Uh, oh, go on. sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's interesting that while Queequeg uh, appears here, you know, um, Queequeg's present and is sort of gawking, frankly, at this, what must seem to him very strange, I don't think he really, um, especially this, there's the whole ser extended sermon, which is in the next chapter, so I'm not going to say anything about it, but... Uh, yeah, um, there's no comment on Queequeg's reactions to anything in the chapel or, uh, like, just sort of, he wandered in, went, huh, this is weird and kind of unpleasant, and then left. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of, like, detail on what's going on with Queequeg. He's just sort of here. Um, which, you know, I think that is kind of already to my, my complaint about Queequeg uh, not getting as much development as I would like. Yeah, no, that, that's very fair. I just think he's... It's almost like he's just present in order to remind the reader, even as uh, Ishmael is, you know, waxing rhapsodic on his particular weird take on Christianity, that there's also this sort of other body of religious... Oh, I'm going to sound so dry and obnoxious here, but religious signification involved... Like, sure. uh, like, like when you say, you know, when you, the line you quoted, which is so good, um, uh, stave my soul, Jove himself cannot. Why Jove? Like, wh why are we bringing in a pagan storm god, like a, the, the Roman god of, of, uh, thunder and king of the, king of Olympus, etc., etc., etc.? Why, why is Jove entering in here? And I think it's because throughout the book, and we see this already a little bit, and we're gonna see it more, one of the sort of virtues of, like, 
quote-unquote paganism or someone who's not, you know, super Christianized and isn't, you know, Ishmael with his weird hyper-religious but also super intellectual approaches uh, is that they can actually enjoy the world. They're like, they live, they're very much more better at being embodied than, say, Ishmael, who, you know, repeatedly is just sort of like, death. Huh. Maybe. Maybe? Yeah, uh, that... That makes sense. Um, I think that's something I, I definitely want to like continue to watch as it develops. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on to our last chapter for today, which is chapter eight, the pulpit. Um, so, the chaplain, whose name is Father Mapple, um, enters the chapel, and. Um, Basically, like, the the summary of everything that Ishmael has to say about this is that he, the, the, the chaplain himself and his pulpit and his church are all nautically themed. <laughs> uh, so, like, the, uh, some of the details that Ishmael includes along these lines is that uh, the way up to the pulpit is a rope ladder, like you would use on the side of a ship. Um... And Father Mapple climbs it in a very sailor-like manner. Um, And then, for uh, a reason that initially escapes Ishmael, Mapple um, pulls the rope ladder up behind him. So he's, like, you know, isolated in his little pulpit and no one can get up there. Um, Which Ishmael decides symbolizes his withdrawal from worldly things. (laughs) Um, Which which makes sense, but I think it, it... if I had to guess, I would say it's more likely just habit. Yeah, habit, or my, my theory is that if they're just... Basically, my theory is that if there's ever, you know, any kind of rowdiness or something like that, he's just sort of... Like, he seems like the kind of person, given his, like, implied maritime backstory and so on, where uh, he just feels a little bit, like, just more secure in giving the word of God, etc., while also physically uh, unreachable. Yeah, maybe so. Um, so Ishmael then starts describing the painting on the wall behind the pulpit, which is of a ship in a storm, um, you know, totally like the fighting the waves, uh, with one little patch of sunlight coming from an angel's face peeking through the clouds. Um, so a very, like straightforward sort of symbolism of, you know, the light of God reaching us even in the darkest times. Uh, and uh, in, then also the front of the pulpit itself is shaped like a ship's bow, um, which Ishmael really likes as a symbolism um, because it's like the pulpit is, you know, the front of the ship uh, leading everyone into, you know, Presumably, spiritual salvation. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, he, he has this wonderful line at the end, The world's a ship on its passage out, and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. So we've once again got that sort of, yeah, orientation towards death and salvation, this sense of, like, the incompleteness of the physical world that's going to be so um, in play for, like, the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely like a sense of um all of sort of the world 
like moving towards an ultimate point. Like that's kind of the idea of providence, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's also that, um, and maybe this is reaching, but we're going to be spending almost the entire book on a boat, like a single boat, but there's people from all over on it and the various like sort of humors and, uh, and positions and ideologies that the book is interested in are all on the Pequod when we get there. Yeah, um, what you're saying is like the Pequod itself is sort of a microcosm of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes yeah, sense. Would, so, as, as I conclude from that, the entire purpose of the world is to hunt the white whale. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's interesting because, like, when when Ishmael is talking in, like, this here about the idea of the pulpit leading the world, it's leading the world ultimately toward, like, uh, you know, Judgment Day when everyone will be, like, united in heaven, right? Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and so if there's an idea of like, everything is moving toward a singular purpose, that purpose is supposed to be like God's plan and fighting the white whale is, it, it's not like evil or anything, but it's certainly not God. It's certainly, yeah, I see, I would, I would frame it another way is that, uh, if, if we're looking at this as, uh, as a model for the Pequod, um, the thing it's moving towards isn't not just God's plan, it's God as an individual. In which case, God is the white whale. Yeah, yeah, and like, Ahab's obsession is like a kind of worship. Or a kind of rebellion. I, I think that that's, that's sort of a... That's a major question going forward, obviously. Yeah, yeah, we really, we haven't even met him yet, um, so we're yep, jumping yep, the gun, yep, really, but... Yep, let's get back to Father Snapple and his Nantucket Nectars. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I've been sitting on that one for the entire thing so far. Well, good for you. You, you waited no. for just the right moment. I don't think there is a right moment for that one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that, that's pretty much all I had written down. Um, that's, that's, that's all that happens in these chapters. Um, next chapter, we're going to start with the actual sermon and then, uh, go from there. I'm not sure how many more chapters we'll read next episode. That's something I'll figure out between the episodes. Mm -hmm. I think we could probably just do the sermon as a single episode because it is, uh, I mean, it's a few pages longer. It's all on one theme, and then after that, we get we do get more Queequeg after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe we could just get 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 Maple out of the way and get get to Queequeg. But uh, like I, we're definitely more interested in Queequeg in Queequeg than Maple. I think it's fair to say. I mean, as a character, yeah. But this the the sermon that he does that he presents is definitely very interesting. So. We'll make sure to focus on that next episode, but... Yeah. Um, um, anything else in these chapters that we want to go back to and touch on? Well, I, I can definitely go back to the uh, various things about Father Maplet as nautical gear, which I just think is... Oh, actually, no, 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 there's something I, I noticed. So, this is just a question. 
what is the the weather like as we're going through this chapter? Because I missed it the first time I read this. In fact, I only caught it during the episode when I was paging through. But apparently there's a storm blowing. Yeah, he actually mentions this. Um, let me see. Yeah, so he uh, he mentions at the beginning of um, the chapel, uh, chapter 7, the sky had yeah. changed from clear sunny cold to driving sleet and mist. Ah, yes, there it is. No, I, I just missed that. I just noticed the storm elsewhere in the same um, in the same uh, chapter, and I, I hadn't caught where it had begun. Yeah, that that doesn't say a lot for my reading comprehension. Oh, whatever. <sighs> it's just one sentence. It's easy to miss. There's not that much discussion of the weather. Yeah, I do like that um, when Maple comes in uh, in the pulpit. It's specifically, um, it's, he's like, he comes in wearing a tarpaulin hat and a great pilot cloth jacket. So he's, he's dressed as a sailor. Um, and then, uh, you know, takes them off in order to ascend the pulpit. Yeah. So, uh, this is a kind of, you know, uh, maybe not the most exciting week because this, these are sort of transitional chapters, um, Kind of just continuing to introduce us to Ishmael and his ways of perceiving the world. That's about mm-hmm. how I would sum it up, anyway. Yeah, that's fair. I I think there's a lot of little things that are a lot of fun, though. I, I really like the, the little capsule description in the street of uh, New Bedford. The um, I mean, the entire scene with Queequeg is at the very least charming. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> And there's that ghost story, which is just, I keep forgetting exists whenever I turn away from it, because it's just so out of nowhere, and I I genuinely don't know what the point of that is in the story. Like, normally I can at least puzzle out a guess for why, why Melville has Ishmael doing a thing, even if that thing is transparently uh, silly on Ishmael's part, but this particular story I'm just sort of befuddled by. Yeah, well, uh, it happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I, I, I'm I, befuddled often by this book, so... Well, I'm not saying I know what's going on, I'm just saying I can, I can hazard a guess, but this one has me stumped. Yeah, fair enough. Well, on that confounding note, uh, oh, well, in fact, to quote Ishmael, afterwards I lost myself in confounding attempts to explain the mystery. Nay, to this very hour, I often puzzle myself with it. Well, same, Ishmael. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, it's been a great time recording with you, Ben. Uh, Thank you. I really like recording with you, too, Tilly. Uh, looking forward to the next Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Father Snapple. <laughs> <laughs>